Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Esther, chapter 4. Continuing our study through this historical narrative, this morning we come to Esther chapter 4. Please give your full attention to the infallible and errant word of God. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. And he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai, so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai and to learn what, what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. If you want to start an interesting conversation at a dinner party, Ask a what-if historical question. For example, ask the question, what if the colonies had lost the Revolutionary War? What if the South had won the Civil War? What if Germany and Japan had won World War II? 
What would our life look like today? What would the world look like if one of those wars had gone in a different direction? We find those kinds of questions interesting for the same reason that we like to read books or watch movies that are, that are related to time travel. That's the appeal, is this idea that we could go back in time. I mean, you tend to think it's about going to the future to see what the future looks like, but most of those stories go back in the past because it fascinates us, the idea that we could go back into the past and make different decisions, take different actions, or cause other people to make different decisions or take different actions and lead to a completely different timeline, making life in the present look very different. If you ever want to figure this out, just watch Back to the Future 2. Doc Brown explains it to Marty, everything you need to know. <laughs> we can all look back on our lives and identify certain defining moments. It's a lot easier to see it in hindsight than it is in the present. To see those moments where we made choices, we made decisions, or we took actions that dramatically changed the direction of our lives. I was only a few weeks away from graduating high school, and I had already chosen my college, and I was making all the preparations to go to Messiah College. And I was in Clarion, Pennsylvania, and I had a hankering for a Big Mac, and so I stopped by the McDonald's on Main Street in Clarion, and, and I walked in there, and I bumped into an acquaintance of mine. I didn't know her well, but I, I, she was a friend, and she was a student at Geneva College. And she asked me, what are your plans? Where are you going to school? I said, well, I'm going to Messiah. And she said, well, did you really look at Geneva? And she, I still wonder whether she was on commission or something, but she really did the hard sell on Geneva, really twisted my arm, take a look at Geneva before you go to Messiah. Make sure you made the right decision. Well, I, told, I kind of dismissed her, but the more I thought about it, I thought, well, maybe I should. I really didn't, you know, the way she described it, sounds like it fits what I'm looking for. So I went and I, and I visited at the very last minute, and I ended up changing my mind. And I ended up at Geneva College for my four years of post-secondary education. When I look back now and think about how different my life had been if I hadn't had that quote-unquote chance encounter and I hadn't changed my mind, hadn't checked out Geneva, had gone to Messiah, I mean, for one thing, humanly speaking, I wouldn't be married to my wife. She was at Geneva, and if I was at Messiah, I wouldn't have known her. I wouldn't have been trained in the theology that I've been trained in, which is still the foundational theology of my life, which I received at Geneva. I would have been trained in a different theology, which would have meant me being in a different church, a different denomination. I wouldn't be here, humanly speaking. Is that really true, though? Has my whole life been determined by a craving for a Big Mac? <laughs> is that really what changed the direction of my life? As we've been studying the book of Esther, we've seen an underlying theme of God's providence. That even though it's such an unusual book, and as we've said over and over, God is not even named, mentioned by name in the book, yet he's everywhere present. In every verse, in every chapter, on every page, God is orchestrating everything from behind the scenes. And it's been a wonderful thing to see this theme of providence working out in all these different narratives and in light of a really tragic narrative where we're at in the story right now. 
Chapter 4 is where we're going to see this belief in providence expressed even, verbally, even though, again, it's not attributed to Yahweh, the God of the scriptures, still, there is an expression of the doctrine of providence here that is, if you grasp it, it's life-changing. As the chapter begins, Mordecai is in deep, profound mourning. We have seen how after his adopted daughter and cousin Esther won the sordid contest to be the queen of Persia, there was this incident where Mordecai disrespected Haman, his mortal enemy, who was the second in line to the throne, the second most powerful man in the Persian Empire. And that personal conflict has now escalated to the point where Haman has gone to the king of Persia and has convinced him to make a decree for the annihilation of all the Jewish people, not just in Susa, his capital city, but throughout every province that all the Jews would be exterminated. This Holocaust was to happen in 11 months. And so as chapter 4 begins, Mordecai is in mourning, certainly mourning over his own approaching execution as well as that of all of his people, of all God's people, but also, I'm sure, wrestling with the fact that somehow, in a small way, his sign of repeated disrespect to Haman had somehow triggered this. He must feel some even sense of responsibility for the way the circumstances has worked out. But Mordecai says he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry in the public square outside the king's gate, which was the entrance to the palace grounds. This sounds like an over-the-top public display of emotion to us in all of our reservedness, but this was common. This was this sackcloth and ashes, tearing your clothes, crying out bitterly. This is, this is how Old Testament people expressed their grief. Matter of fact, even in a Persian culture, if you go to, to historians who talk about Persian culture, they would tear their clothes in grief. This was common in that culture, in that area. It was a way of expressing grief, yes, despair over difficult circumstances, over a crisis. But for the Jews, it was more than that. It was an expression of humility, of submission to God, seeking God in a time of great difficulty. In verse 3, it says that the Jews throughout the, the empire also put on sackcloth and ashes and fasted in grief as they awaited the, the date of the execution. What's interesting that Mordecai stationed himself at the king's gate. We said that before, that that was one of the main government buildings at the gate into the palace, palace grounds. He stationed himself there. It was, it was illegal for him to wear sackcloth and ashes, to be grieving inside the king's gate or inside the palace grounds. But he, he stationed himself right outside. And remember earlier in the story, he would do that to be in touch with Esther. And obviously she became aware that he was wearing sackcloth and ashes, crying out bitterly, and so she sends one of her most trusted servants to say, what's wrong, Mordecai? All she knew is that something terrible had happened. She was so isolated in the palace, she had no idea about the king's decree. And so Mordecai responds by sending her servant back with a copy of the king's decree so she could see for his, herself what this terrible thing that had been put in place. And also... Interestingly, he's aware somehow of the shady dealings that went on behind the decree where Haman 
made a bribe to the king. Why would the king carry, you know, go along with this plan, this plot? Because, as you remember, Haman bribed him with 10,000 talents of silver if he would go along. Interestingly, do you notice the exact language of what Mordecai sends back? He's her father, her, her adoptive father. And he speaks to her as a father. He says, you do this. He commands her, go to the king and plead for your people. Plead for your people, Esther. He's reminding her of her identity, and we're going to see that as an ongoing theme. Does she really see herself as Hadassah, the servant of Yahweh, of the covenant people of God, or is she Esther, queen of Persia? Where is her basic identity? Mordecai says, these are your people. Go to the king of Persia and plead for your people. Esther, when she hears of what Mordecai wants her to do, she's shocked. She says, it's impossible. I can't do that because there's a law in Persia that no one can come into the king's presence unless they've been invited. If anybody takes it upon themselves to enter into the king's presence, they will be executed. That's the law. There's also, and the commentators pointed this out, there's also indications that Esther may well have fallen out of the king's favor by this point. She says here in this text that she had not been called into the king for 30 days, for a month. But even more than that, there's an interesting reference back in chapter 2 in verse 19. There's a reference there to, it's after she was, she was made the queen and coronated and all that, after she was in place on the throne, it says there was a second gathering of the virgins. And commentators wonder, well, why is that thrown in there? What was that about? We don't even know what that was. Well, there seems to be an indication that the king had kind of moved on from Esther. We know about his taste for women. And did he gather virgins again to, to, to bring others into his harem? And there's a sense that, that not only is it against the law for her to go into the king's presence, but she doesn't even have the favor of the king any longer. Well, Mordecai replies to her protestations with a rebuke. And it's probably one of the more familiar passages in the book of Esther. Starts in verse 13. Basically says to Esther, Esther, Esther three things. He says, Esther, you're a Jew. Remember who you are. You're a Jew. And this decree applies to you as well. And you're not going to be able to hide in the palace forever. Secondly, he says to her, if you decide in self-preservation to keep your mouth shut... God will still deliver his people. God will raise up a deliverer or he'll do something circumstantial to deliver his people. He will not forsake his people. Thirdly, Esther, you need to consider whether all the strange twists and turns of your life have led you to this point where you have a unique opportunity to serve God, to be used of God to deliver his people to be part of what God is doing to save his people. He has brought you to this point for such a time as this. As we listen carefully to what Mordecai said to Esther, we are hearing him articulate a faith and a belief in what we call the doctrine of providence. God is not mentioned by name, but he is all over every event that happens in the book of Esther. He is orchestrating everything to accomplish his purpose according to his plan. 
This is how the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines providence as a doctrine. Providence, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. There are no qualifications on those alls. All of his creatures and all of their actions are under the sovereign control of God. Everything that happens in human history from the beginning to now to the end of human history is planned by God. Everything occurs according to his plan. No tiny detail of that plan will fail to come to pass. How did Mordecai know that God was going to deliver his people? How could he assure Esther of that? How did he know it? Based on two things that were core beliefs of his worldview. One, God had promised that he would not forsake his people. It was a key promise of his covenant of grace that he would preserve a faithful remnant of his people, that his people would not be destroyed, and that from his people would come a Messiah by which he would ultimately save his people. And so God is faithful to fulfill his promises. That's the first plank of Mordecai's worldview. The second plank is God is sovereign. That's how we can know that God is going to fulfill his promise. I can promise you today that I'm going to do something for you tomorrow, but you can't know for sure that I'm going to do it because I am not sovereign. I cannot control the circumstances of my life. God is sovereign. That's how when God makes a promise, that's how we know that he's going to fulfill it is because he is totally in control of every detail of every moment of life. Everything happens according to his plan. That's why Mordecai could be sure. He is interpreting providence. Notice there is some uncertainty. He, the only, he's not uncertain at all that God is going to deliver his people. He's absolutely certain about that. What he's uncertain about is what role Esther's going to play. He's interpreting providence. And remember I said that providence is easier to interpret looking backwards than it is looking forward. He doesn't know the future, but looking backwards, he's, he's saying to Esther, look at what God has done. You were a poor orphan, Jew, Jewish orphan, who somehow got caught up in this sordid beauty contest that the king put on, and now you're the queen of Persia. You are in a position of influence. God is orchestrating something, and he's interpreting, saying, could it be, Esther, that he has brought you to this point for such a time as this, to do something great for the kingdom, to be a part of what God is doing to deliver his people? I want to pause to just reflect on the doctrine of providence for a second. Christians have wrestled with this. What does it mean? Every, every Christian would say they believe God is sovereign. But what does that really mean? What, how does that impact my life day in and day out? Let me say up front, it is impossible to understand two truths that Scripture teaches equally. The first truth is what I've just said. God has a plan for all of history that he put in place before the foundation of the world. And nothing can change that plan. Nothing can thwart that plan. That plan will come to pass. And that plan 
includes every detail of human history. The scriptures are clear on that. That's truth number one. Let me read you one of the most succinct, clearest statements of that we have anywhere in scripture. It's in Isaiah chapter 46, beginning in verse 9, where God, Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth, he says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. That's the God of the scriptures. And we need to bow a knee to scripture, to his word, and bow a knee to him as Lord and say, I accept that. But the Bible also equally teaches that we are free to make decisions according to our own mind and our own will. Nobody forces us to decide what we decide. Every choice we make, every decision we make, we are free to make it according to our desires, according to our minds, according to our hearts, according to our pleasures, and we're fully accountable for every choice that we make. Fully accountable. Scripture teaches that God, even though God does not cause us to sin, somehow, mysteriously, he even includes our sinful choices and actions into his eternal plan that was set in place before the foundation of the world. It's what Joseph was talking about when he talks about how his brothers beat him, throw him in a pit, sold him as a slave, which led to him being taken as a slave to Egypt, being thrown into prison. And he said to his brothers when he finally had a chance to confront them about it, he said, you meant it for evil. And you're accountable for that. But God meant it for good that I might be able to deliver God's people. That's what Mordecai is asking Esther to rec recognize. Is that God has brought her through both good decisions and bad decisions to where she is in life. And he's brought her for such a time as this. We are incapable of understanding how both of these teachings in Scripture, God is sovereign and we're fully responsible for all our choices and actions, we are incapable, let me underline the word incapable, of understanding how those things go together. But we must hold to the fact that the Scriptures equally teach both to be true. We are incapable because it's a truth that's beyond us. Our human brains are too small to comprehend how God does this. We just have to accept his word that it's true. But that's not unique to Christians. Everybody has things that they accept to be true that seemingly are contradictory. Ask an atheist scientist how everything that exists came out of nothing. Ask them that question. And if they're honest, they will say, I don't know. But they'll say, give us enough time and we scientists will figure it out but is acknowledging that with their human understanding, they're not able to know how everything could come out of nothing. We have an answer for that. God spoke. And you think it's hard to believe that everything came out of nothing? You think it's hard to believe that God is absolutely fully sovereign every, mo every moment of history and we are fully accountable and responsible for all our actions and choices? You think that's hard to believe? How about the fact that God is three persons in one God? How reasonable is that? 
How does that fit into your little human brain? That this God who is three persons in one God became man while still remaining fully God. Can your human brain figure that one out? That this God-man walked on water, fed 5,000 with a few loaves and a few fish, spoke to a storm and stopped it, was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. These are things we believe because God has revealed them to be true and he's opened our eyes to understand and believe it. But our brains can't comprehend that. And so that's all I'm doing is pleading with you. There's so many Christians that want to emphasize one over the other. They emphasize God's sovereignty to the point that they make us out to be robots who live by fate. But then you have people on the other end of the spectrum who want to emphasize man's responsibility to the point where God is some weak creature who's pleading with us to do what's right but is powerless to do anything about it. You know the scariest theological concept that is out there for me is the idea that God is out of control of any decision that I make. That God is out of control of any square centimeter in the universe. That's a scary thought to me. Scriptures teach it, and we just need to bow a knee to it and accept it. But there's a beautiful result of accepting it. A beautiful result is the peace of God. When, God, when the scriptures talk about God's sovereignty, it doesn't ever talk about it in such a way that we can understand it. Expecting us to understand it. Read Romans 9 sometime. You think we're supposed to understand this fully? Read Romans 9. Paul gets to a point and says, it is what it is. You need to accept it. Because this is who God is and this is who we are. Mordecai is telling Esther to view her life in light of God's sovereign work in her life. What is God orchestrating? And how does this fit into his plan? That's the way to look at life. God has planned every moment in history. History is linear. History is a story that is written by God, that's being worked out, and somehow mysteriously using the free choices and decisions that we make. I can't explain that, but it gives me great comfort in the light of crises, in the light of suffering, in the light of all the difficulties of life. Commentator David Strain said this. He said, here is the proper use of the doctrine of divine sovereignty. It's not a theological bludgeon with which to beat other Christians. It is not a shibboleth by which to test for orthodoxy. It is a refuge in which to rest secure, a safe harbor in which to anchor your faith amidst every trial, a hiding place in the storm. That's what the doctrine of divine providence is. It's a, it's a safe place. It's a comforting place. It is so good to know that God's in control, no matter what. How does this affect our lives? I think there's three things in this passage that Mordecai's response to Esther can teach us. First of all, God has a plan, but it's not dependent on you. God has a plan that is not dependent upon you and your obedience and your submission to it and your cooperation with it. Mordecai says, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Esther had a real choice, and she made a real choice. Her choice was to selfishly hold on to her earthly life with all of its royal comforts and privileges or to choose to die to self and serve God 
and his people. And Mordecai says to her, if you choose to disobey, if you choose to remain silent selfishly, God is still going to keep his promise. He's still going to deliver his people. He's not going to switch to plan B. Plan A will still go forward from God's perspective. God's going to use other people or other circumstances to deliver his people because God is faithful to his promise and God is sovereign over all circumstances. Now, at that point, Esther, I could imagine myself, easy for me to imagine myself in Esther's shoes saying, good, send somebody else, Lord. <laughs> I'm happy, please send somebody else to do this. Just like Moses. But Mordecai says, but you and your house will perish. There'll be consequences. If you choose selfishly to live for this world, then there will be consequences. You'll have to bear the consequences of your disobedience, bear the consequences of sin, and you'll miss out on the blessing, the blessing of serving God, being used of God to accomplish his purposes in the world. God's kingdom is advancing. It's amazing when you really look with the eyes of faith and see how the kingdom of God is advancing in every part of the world today. In some ways, especially where God's people are being killed and attacked and persecuted. God's kingdom is advancing. God's kingdom is advancing in State College. God's kingdom is advancing at Penn State and in Center County. The question is, are we going to choose to be quiet? Are we going to choose to keep our mouths shut? Are we going to be passively sitting on the sidelines while... God uses our brothers and sisters in Christ to accomplish his will? Or are we going to choose to be a part of it? Are we going to choose to be bold, to speak up, to share Christ, to point people to him, to preach the cross? God's plan is not dependent upon us. Second point to learn from Mordecai's response is God's plan is not about us. The plan that God set in place before the foundation of the world is not about us. You know, we watch too many movies. You know, when you watch a movie, you figure out who the central character is, the main character, and the whole movie, everything that happens in the movie, everything that happens in the story revolves around that character. And the whole story gets wrapped up either for good or for bad for that character. And the problem is you watch too many TV shows or movies like that, and all of a sudden you start to see your own life like that. You start walking through your life every day thinking, this whole story is about me, you know. Everything that's happening, I'm the center of the universe here. Everything that's happening is about me. That's not the biblical perspective. In Scripture, Jesus Christ is the main character. The whole story revolves around him. All of history revolves around him. Yes, God's plan includes us, but it's not about us. It's about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The defining moment of all of history, the defining moment of all history you might say it took place at the cross, but I would say it actually happened a little bit earlier than the cross. It happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because that's where Jesus Christ had to make a choice. The God-man who lived a perfect life, kept God's will perfectly in every detail, every moment of his life, was called upon to go to the cross. And he had to choose to obey. And your salvation, my salvation, the salvation of all God's people in every age rested on that choice that he made. And it was not an easy choice. Because he knew that by going to the cross, 
He was choosing, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, to be crushed by God. To have the full weight of the judgment that all of our sins deserve come crushing down upon him. To die there on the cross and bear the hell that you and I deserved in our place fully until every drop of the cup of God's wrath was poured out upon him. And he obeyed. He trusted in God's plan. And he fulfilled God's plan. Unlike Esther, everything depended upon his choice. There was no plan B. He was plan A. But it was a real choice. God was sovereign. He promised from before the foundation of the world, throughout all the ages of the Old Testament, he promised that Christ would come and lay down his life as the Passover lamb so that we could be saved And yet Christ had to make a real choice as a man, as a God-man. And he obeyed and he trusted in God's plan. And we've borne the grace that flows from that cross. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. It was important that the scriptures allow us to, to hear that prayer to understand what Christ wrestled with. He wrestled to the point of shedding blood with obedience. But he trusted and he submitted. And having reflected on that, it adds a whole lot more power to his words when he says to his disciples and he says to you and me, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When Mordecai said to Esther, the Lord has brought you to this point for such a time as this. That's what he's talking about. Are you going to die to self, Esther? Going to die to your worldly comforts and power and status? And obey and trust in the plan of God and serve his purposes? God has a plan It's not dependent upon us. It's not about us. But thankfully, the last point I want to make is that God's plan is for us. It's not about us, but it is for us. In verses 16 and 17, Esther chooses to die to self and to submit to the Lord's plan. She tells Mordecai to get the word out to all the Jews in the city to fast and pray. And for the Jews to fast, that meant prayer. Again, prayer is not mentioned in this book, but here it talks about fasting. And with fasting, the Jews, they prayed. Because fasting for the Jews was not some religious ritual. It was a way of waiting upon the Lord, of humility and submitting to the will of the Lord. And then Esther says, I will go to the king. She makes her decision of her own free will. I will go to the king. And if I perish, I perish. Now, it's easy to read that and hear it like it's a statement of fatalism. You know, they used to, in my parents' generation, talk about that old song, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. That's fatalism. Or as maybe somebody younger would say, it is what it is, you know. That's fatalism. That's just despairing out of your lack of control. No, this is Esther saying, I'm going to obey, Lord. I'm going to trust in your plan. I'm going to trust in your will. I'm going to trust in you to be there for me no matter what the consequences are. And if I perish, I perish. 
I submit to that. It's the same, same as the, the, the Virgin Mary saying to the angel, let it be to me according to your word. It's submission to the plan of God and saying, Lord, use me, whatever the cost. And so we must say with Esther, Lord, I'll obey. I'll do what you're calling me to do, whatever the cost, because I trust you. If I'm fired by my boss, I'm fired by my boss. If I'm rejected by my friends, I'm rejected by my friends. If I'm mocked and ridiculed, I'm mocked and ridiculed. If I die, I die. Because I trust you and I trust in your plan. His plan is not about us, but it is for us. That's what Paul's trying to get across in Romans chapter 8. When he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Christians quote that all the time. But do you realize that no Christian could ever say that if God was not absolutely, totally sovereign over every moment in history? Because if God wasn't totally sovereign, then how do you know that everything works out for the good? Everything works out for the good. And Paul goes on to say, For those who are called according to his purpose, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? His plan will be accomplished, and we will enjoy for eternity the benefits of what Christ did for us. As you look back on your life, I would just challenge you this morning, this afternoon, I would challenge you, don't, don't live by the what-if scenario. Don't be always asking yourself, what if I hadn't made that choice? What if I hadn't done that sin? What if, I, what if I had gone to a different place? What if I had not married that person? What if I had not had children? Don't ask the what if questions. Look for the hand of God orchestrating all things in your life and then try to interpret where is he leading and be confident that he's working everything together for good and that your future is secure because of what Christ did for you. I want to end by asking you to do something I don't usually do, but I want you to repeat after me. Repeat after me, first of all. God has a plan. God has a plan. Say it again more vigorously. God has a plan. God has a plan. God's plan is not dependent on me. God's plan is not about me. But God's plan is for me. Let's pray. Father, it is so reassuring to know that in a world where everything seems to be spiraling out of control, where chaos seems to rule the day, that this is all according to your plan. You are weaving a tapestry, and we cannot see how all the different colored threads, especially the dark, ominous threads, come together to create the beauty of the plan of redemption and your plan for history. But we trust you, Lord. Your word tells us that you're in control. We have seen that, that hand of God working in our lives so faithfully. And we've seen your promises fulfilled over and over again. So we trust you with our future. We are certain that Christ is coming again. We are certain that we will be forgiven and pardoned and granted eternal life because Christ was faithful in submitting to your will and your plan. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.